Amen, if you will. Open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Uh, we'll begin uh, again this morning in verse 17, reading through the end of that chapter in verse 38. Again, the book of Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 17. We uh, returned uh, to our exposition of Acts last week, and uh, it is my plan uh, to do three sermons from this particular text because I believe it is uh, so essential, uh, this discussion of the leadership of the church and the function of the elders in the church. I think it is essential to the, to the health of uh, the church. If you think back to our previous series on the family, I hope that we proved the case that God was exceptionally wise in his design of creation. In particular, he created his image bearers as male and female for the unique purpose of their flourishing within the God-ordained institution of marriage. Their purpose of representing God upon the earth was to be fulfilled within the bonds and the boundaries of marriage. We have seen that it is a fool's errand to undermine and or to redefine marriage. This assault is rooted in the devilish wisdom of men, and while destructive, it will only serve to destroy its own proponents and practitioners. It is similarly foolish to reject God's wise design and purpose for His institution, the church, the blood-bought bride of His Son, Jesus Christ. God defined that the church be organized under the Lordship of Christ through the Spirit-filled leadership of God-called and biblically qualified men who serve under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, for the purpose of the flourishing of the church to the glory of God. These under-shepherds serve humbly and soberly as those who will give an account to God for their care of His flock. So let's read this morning. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself, 
if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and uh, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how him, he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed and with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced and Paul embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you uh, for your word, uh, for your word is true. It reveals the, the greatness of our God and his salvation accomplished through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It helps us to understand how to, to best organize that which you have created and redeemed through the work of your Son, how we're to best organize for the best function, for the best flourishing of your people, for the best witness in an ever-darkening world. So God, I pray that you would grant to us uh, the ability uh, to communicate your truth, uh, to communicate it accurately, and that your spirit would give to each of us understanding and, and strength uh, to apply uh, your word uh, to our lives for our own good. And again, for a testimony to a watching world and for the very glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have worked our way through the book of Acts, we have seen the unfolding of church history, uh, the, the work of uh, these original followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and their determined proclamation of the gospel wherever God would send them. And he had told them, you're going to go throughout the world and your charge is to teach them that which I have commanded to you. 
The book of Acts opens with this unique note of the ascension of our Lord into heaven, a, a once and for all accomplishment. And then it references uh, this business of a question from the disciples about the restoration of the kingdom. Is it, is it right now or what, 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 are we, what are we waiting on here? And really the book of Acts is the story of the expansion of the kingdom through the proclamation of the Word, through the working of His Spirit, utilizing that Word as it's proclaimed. And it's interesting that the book of Acts closes with a word about the kingdom. And if you saw that question initially, you might think we're about to see something of the outstanding and astounding explosive growth of the kingdom into this dynamic and robust and visible and influential entity in our world. And it is. Yet at the same time, the leading practitioner, proponent, proclaimer of this message of the kingdom, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is in chains in a Roman prison. That's not what we would have expected had we opened the book of Acts and read it for the first time. We would have expected something else. But here's the thing. The gospel of that kingdom has never, nor will it ever, be chained. That the gospel will continue to go forward, no, no matter how hostile the world is, how antagonistic the forces of evil is and will be, the gospel will be proclaimed, the church will be built, uh, the kingdom will be established and will be here to welcome her king upon his return. And so the book of Acts in a very real sense, I think, fleshes out for us or at least illustrates for us, this is what kingdom expansion looks like. It looks like that it expands even though all of the weaponry, of the forces of darkness, of the, of the evil one are aligned against it and are designed to frustrate this proclamation and this expansion. And yet I believe that we should be encouraged with Jesus' words that not even the gates of hell are going to prevail against his work and his people. And so as we come, you know, there's a, there's a number of transitional points as we follow the narrative along. And here in Acts chapter 20, and I've told you, I think, this is really, I think, my favorite part of the book. I, I just, I, it, it, just um, it just grabs my attention, both the pathos of, of the moment and, and, and the message of, of, of this moment. But it seems to be a bit of a plateau. And it allows us to look back at how the kingdom has developed and moved throughout the world. And it's going to prepare us to look ahead. As Paul says, 
Now, I'm not going to be frustrated in that which I believe God has called me to do. And yet I know that everywhere I go, that I'm going to be opposed, that I'm going to be persecuted, that I'm even going to be prosecuted for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says some things to these leaders, these pastors, these elders that lead that church in Ephesus that he had poured his life in for three years. He says some things to them to prepare them, really, for something very similar to that which he is about to experience. And not only to prepare them, but to prepare us for that which has historically been a reality for the church. And that is the opposition of the evil one and all those who align themselves with him. And so let's continue our look this morning. I'll pick up in verse 23. We uh, looked at the, the first two or three verses last week. We come to verse 23, and we're going to look at Paul's perspective on life and ministry. And remember that he wrote in verse 23 that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await, that Paul is quite certain that he is going to experience the hostility of this evil realm that continues to exist in the world. If you remember a few weeks ago, as we looked at 2 Timothy 3, Paul makes what is a universal statement. All, not some, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, with certainty, suffer persecution. If, if you're going to stand for the truth of the Word of God, by definition, the world can't. They, I, I mean, in a sense, it would be insanity for the world to look at those of us that proclaim the truth and say, you know, you're right. I love that. As long as they remain a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, they're going to hate the message of the gospel and hate those who proclaim it. That's the way it is. And so there is a, a certainty to this persecution, and, and we, we really do have to ask the question, why is this the case? Why is there this certainty of persecution? Uh, you know, at some level, I suppose as a long-time Christian, I tend to think of us as the good guys, the, the do-gooders in the world, that, that we have done much for uh, the cause of Christ that, that in reality has alleviated a great deal of, of human suffering. We have, we have built hospitals. We've established food banks and soup kitchens, and we've had homeless shelters and orphanages, and we could go on and on and on. The, uh, the, 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 the acts of kindness and love that have been done in the name of Christ in the world. And yet, the world still looks at us and levels all types of accusations uh, against us, 
and seeks to frustrate us in our, our, our mission and attempt to force us to compromise the integrity of our message. Just, just round off the corners. If you'll accept this and this, we can, we can probably work together on these projects that are really good for all of mankind. But our fundamental problem is our message, is it not? And so while we're charged to love our enemies and to do good to them that even persecute us, they still respond with animosity. Now, part of that is this. In the faithful proclamation of the gospel, and remember this, the gospel makes absolutely zero sense. There's nothing about it that's understandable. If you don't understand that all men are guilty before God. We spent quite a bit of time with these young people this week. And we spoke to them about the reality that God is holy and you're not. And let me prove it to you. And we went to the Ten Commandments and we took five of those commandments. And I don't think there was a child there that would have stood up and said, I ain't never done none of that. Let me, you go ask my mom and daddy. I honor them 24-7. And let me tell you, when they tell me I can't have something, I go, well, thank you for caring so much to deny that to me. And on down the list it goes. But the world hates us because the law establishes not just the, the felt weight of guiltiness, but the reality of a legal guilt before a holy God that we have violated his will, we have offended his character, we have broken his law. So they hate us because of that, because it exposes sin. And we love our sin. Now, sometimes in the church we love it too, don't we? Now, Brother Tim, you know what I'm going to say. Oh, Brother Tim, we all sin, don't we? We do, and you better thank God there's a Savior. And you better rejoice in the truth of that Savior. But the law indicts and exposes, and the sinner, by definition, loves their sin. The gospel denies all other alternatives. The gospel is unique. It is, it is singular. The gospel is about one purpose, one person, one way. His name is Jesus. And I, 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 I say this far too frequently, I know. But I want to scream when I hear, now what is your truth? Well, what does this mean to you? How, well, I just feel, I don't care. Now, you know, I'm a touchy-feely guy at heart. Okay. What matters is God's truth. It is objective, it is transcendent, and it is eternal. And it is a standard by which all men, all men will be judged. And so the gospel denies all, all it rules out everybody's opinion. And I've told you before, at some level, I'll defend your right to be wrong. To a limit. Now, I won't agree that you're right. I'll just defend your right to be a knothead. Okay? So, 
the law indicts, the gospel denies, and the gospel strips us of any claim of human accomplishment. When we talk about repentance, and some of our young men who will be nameless, the South boys, uh, <laughs> took us on a hike. And I apologize for the ugly name I called you, okay? It may, it may be true, but I'm, I'm sorry I called you that. But they gave me the perfect illustration of repentance. Because guess what? We were going the wrong way. We were following the wrong leader. And we had to turn around. We had to repent and change direction. Had to, had to even change our attitude because we're, we're following. Well, no, no, we got to go this way. I mean, it's a, whole, it's, it's a whole big radical change. And one thing I failed to mention that I often mention in this business of repentance, it ties into this. Yeah, you've got to repent of all those things that, that there's a fair amount of agreement. You shouldn't lie and do things like that. And we've all, We're all guilty, so we need to repent. We need to repent of that which you and many others think is good. We've got to repent of our good works. If you think that there's something that you have done or something you haven't done, I mean, I know, listen, let me tell you something. I, know, I look at y'all, I know there's some goody two-shoes out there. I know there's a bunch, I ain't never done that. I didn't do that. I, didn't do that. I, didn't do that. I, I, just, I just hear it now. There's not many of you, but look. But here's the thing. Just because you didn't, and you haven't, and you won't, if you think that's going to gain ground with God and give you the standing before Him when you call, when you're called upon to give an account for your life, you need to repent of anything, of any claim that you think is worthy to stand before God and confess. All I know to say is the man on the middle cross. The man on the middle cross said I could come, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So we have all of those issues that, that again, they hated Jesus, and Jesus said they're going to hate you as well. The certainty of persecution. And then we see in verse 24 a, some biblical evaluation in light of this persecution and, and in light of life. Notice how he phrases this in verse, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. What's the main thing? Just finish the course. Just remain faithful. Just proclaim the word. And you know what? When God's finished with me, I'll be glad to go. And, and, you know, and I don't mean to keep going back to this, okay? You know, and I, listen, put your seatbelt on when you leave here today, okay? All right? It's not going to change God's timetable, but don't be a dummy. Put your seatbelt on, okay? But all of this stuff over the last three years has exposed that we are paranoid, we are scared to death of death. And we think that we're going to do something that's going to change that which God has decreed. And you're not. So live with abandon. Don't be reckless. Don't be stupid. That's not what I'm saying. But 
boldly and aggressively pursue the course that God has ordained for you. Walk it with courage and live for the sake of the gospel so that you can stand before him one day and hear, well done. You got over all of that worrying, didn't you? Well done. And that was Paul's perspective. That's why he could write for me to live as Christ. And what? And to die is so much better. To die, he didn't have a death wish. He wasn't suicidal. It wasn't anything like that. He just simply understood. My, my life is in God's hand. It's in him. No, nobody's going to snatch me out of the hand of the good shepherd. Right? No. I am secure. And so, just a biblical evaluation of both the quality and quantity of life. Paul would write in Romans 8, 18. And you know, again, we've been together a long time. I have some sense of what many of you have suffered over these years. I'm not saying that suffering is not real. But Paul would write in Romans 8, 18, I don't count the sufferings of this present age worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. Now listen, I'm here to tell you, life can hurt. And it can hurt really, really badly. I mean, I, that, don't raise your hand. How many of you just had a day, I, I, I don't even want to get out of bed. Just let me pull the covers over my head. Let me just stay there. Uh, that, that, do I even want to continue in life? And yet Paul can say, with complete integrity because the Holy Spirit inspired it. That don't mean nothing because we ain't seen nothing yet. The glory of God in the face of our Savior. And so that gives us uh, perspective on, on life and th that our life is on God's timetable. The psalmist wrote in your book, we're written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of, <clears throat> none of them were. Again, God is a subtle fact. And Jesus would expound on this. Just don't be anxious. You, you, you can't add to your life. You can't make yourself taller. Uh, you can't make yourself this, that, or the other. I've got this. You're in my care. And Paul could also write that I have learned. Now, whatever the, it is that God has ordained for my life, Whatever aspect of suffering he sends my way. Whatever aspect of suffering he sends my way. God will be faithful. And God has his purpose in all of it. And I can trust him. Let's move forward. Paul's proclamation of a single unified message. Again, his intent, his, his, the reason that he would suffer all of these terrible things that were going to, had come to him and would come to them was that he would testify to the gospel of the grace of God. A gospel that's preserved in God's word for us. A gospel that, that he could say wasn't really man's gospel, that, that he as an apostle, unique position, 
A unique role he played in the development of the church, a unique, unique role he played in the unfolding of redemptive history that God gave him this gospel by revelation, but it was a gospel that was consistent with that which was proclaimed by every other faithful proclaimer of the gospel since the gospel began to be proclaimed when God himself proclaimed it, when he said, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the seed of the serpent. It's all a single unified message of God's activity, God's work to redeem sinful human beings for the sake of His glory. This gospel of grace, and I believe it's, you know, there's a synonym that Paul uses. Look at verse uh, 27, that he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. So it, that's an interesting term. And, and the funny thing is, and I've told you this before, many times when I'm studying the Scriptures, and I'll go, wow, that's, that's an intriguing term or word. And I'll start flipping through the commentaries, and they just kind of pass over it. I'm like, hmm, that's strange. I thought that was kind of significant. And there's really not a whole lot said, at least in what I surveyed. But what does it mean to preach this business of the whole council, the word is boule, word for will, to preach the entirety of the will of God, really for humanity, with peculiar reference, particular reference to those to whom he has redeemed. We've talked a lot about what we call the meta-narrative, the big picture. This, this sweep and arc of redemptive history the, and, and this problem that we have with the dismantling of language, the denial of reality, the rejection of objective truth that's founded upon transcendent God, this whole counsel is increasingly unintelligible to a very unintelligent world. I, again, seems like I got to use one of my favorite phrases this week. Can't remember who I said it to. It's not original to me, but sin can be forgiven, and stupidity is forever. And, and so, but you look at the ignorance, the willful, intentional ignorance of people that want to do all of this business of denying reality, that, that none of this makes sense. I mean, the same people that can deny that it is an image bearer in the womb of a mother are the same people that can very boldly declare that I'm a man in a woman's body. I mean, both completely divorced from any sense of objective reality. If you can get there, you can get anywhere. You can go to the stars and beyond with that kind of thinking. And so... We preach this whole council, and I mentioned this the other day, as John Piper said, to enlarge the heart so that we may comprehend the very majesty of God. That even before we see his face, and when we see his face, everything, everything will make sense and nothing else will matter. You know, you get those, well, well, we know, and can we ask? And I'm like, let me tell you something, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But when you see the face of Jesus, nothing else will matter. And, and, and there's a sense to that's what we're after even now. 
in, in some illustrative, metaphorical, but yet real way. I want you to see the face of the one who loved you so much, he came into this world, he suffered its affliction, and he died on the cross for our sins as a testimony, as an application of his love for us. And I want you to see that. I want you to experience that, the, 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 the weightiness of that reality. And so in preaching this whole council, we, we preach on the themes and the realities of creation and rebellion and redemption and consummation. We, we preach this business of the law of God, as I've already mentioned, that, that none of this makes sense if you're not guilty of something. I did a little thing with our children at VBS. It's been two or three years ago, and I think I did it a couple of times. I took, uh, I think it was an umbrella and a life preserver and a fire extinguisher and did a little thing with them and said, uh, here, I, this is a great umbrella. I would love for you to have this umbrella. I think you will enjoy having it, and when you need it, you'll be thankful you have an umbrella. And the, they would say, I don't need an umbrella. The sun is shining. I am not going to haul the stupid umbrella around while the sun is shining. And then I would move forward to the life preserver. Hey, this is a great life preserver, and it's an expensive life preserver. And if you're ever out in the middle of the ocean and you fall off the boat, this life preserver will keep you alive. I don't see any water out there, Brother Tim. I don't need a life preserver. I mean, this thing's heavy, and if I put it on, I'll burn up. No, thank you. Well, here's this, this fire extinguisher. And I'm telling you, if there's ever a fire, you will be thankful. If your car engine ever catches on fire, you will be thankful you've got this fire engine. If you ever have a grease fire, you'll be thankful. Blah, blah. I don't smell smoke. I, do you think I... Listen. Do you realize how, how people will talk about me if I walk into Walmart carrying my fire extinguisher? They don't need it. And the gospel is just, is perceived as being just as useless. If you don't realize, if you don't realize the rain and the sea and the fire, it is just as useless if you don't establish the guilt, the need. And it's only those that recognize the incredible depth of their own guilt that cry out for a Savior who can and does save. And so we preach, and again, Paul uses another term, the, the very gospel of God. He preaches the good news that God has acted. He has demonstrated His great love. That while, not while we were, now, God, here are my 17 worst bad habits. I'm going to quit all of them. And here's, here's 14 uh, uh, things that I'm, I'm promising to do for the rest of my life, and I am really going to be good. No, while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking our fist at God, saying, I will gladly kill your son if you've seen him into the world. He demonstrated his love for sinners through his son, Christ Jesus, who came to seek and to save the unholy, the lost, the guilty. And so that, that is why 
we emphasize the proclamation of the Word. That's why we preach the Word. It's the imperishable seed of the new birth. We recognize faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And as the Old Testament prophet acknowledged, if I say I will not remember the Lord or speak His name anymore, then there is a burning fire in my heart. It is bound up in my bones. For those who know Jesus, they cannot help but speak faithfully about the faithful one, as Paul would say, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. The final thing here that we see in verse 26, he makes this incredible declaration that I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. I think that's an allusion back to a couple of passages in the book of Ezekiel where God reveals, listen, if there's a watchman and you assign him the task of, of guarding the wall and an enemy comes, if he sounds the alarm and people ignore it, he's not guilty of their blood. But if he fails to sound the alarm, he is guilty of the blood of those the enemy destroys. And we must sound the alarm. Paul would write, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we seek to persuade men. We're concerned for those who will stand before God and they're not prepared. They're not robed in the robes of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're concerned for those that will make the attempt and say, Lord, Lord, look at the resume. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you you workers of iniquity. And so as I, as I think about that concept, and I mentioned to you last week, some people think that I'm bold, and I assure you, I don't even think of myself that way. I'm a man that is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to him that I will give an account let me tell you one of the most helpful things that you'll ever discover. And I love you, and I, I hope you know that, and I really do. And, and I don't like it for people to be upset with me and disappointed and all those things that, that happen. But my primary concern is not that you approve of this message. Okay? I, I mean, maybe that disappoints you a little bit in me, but that's not my primary concern. My concern is this, that it meets God's approval. And the only way it meets God's approval is being faithful to that which He's given us, this whole counsel of God. And he warns us, hey, not many of you should take upon the, yourself this task of teacher because you're held to a stricter standard. You're shepherds indeed, but you're going to give an account to the chief shepherd for the care of his sheep, for the faithfulness to the Word of God. And so that's why we have kind of paused here to offer a bit of a, an explanation and, and maybe a, a kind of a, a defense, an apologetic for why we do what we do, the way we do it. We are not so much men with authority, we are men under the great authority. And we'll give an account We've willingly embraced this role. 
we've accepted a, a call from a local congregation to stand before them and make the claim, I'm faithfully proclaiming to you that which God has revealed in His Word. And that is a privilege and it is a joy, I promise you. But it is a sobering responsibility. And the best way, and I've told you, you know, I think it was last week I talked about the reality. You need to smell like sheep. And I smelled like a bunch of little sheep this week, okay? All right? You know, it, uh, I don't know, I don't know how, many, how many showers got taken by some of these kids. I, I guess a, a run through the swimming pool suffices for a lot of them. But yes, indeed, you, you must smell like sheep. You must be in and among them and care for them and cry with them. But the most important thing that I do to shepherd your soul is to preach, to preach this powerful, eternal word of God. And so may we all be found faithful. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And indeed, at times we, we are perplexed in this world. But so many times, if we go and search diligently your word, we indeed uh, find that our anxieties and our perplexity is resolved. You have called us not really to success. You've called us to faithfulness. And so, God, I pray that your word would accomplish that for which you have sent it, that it would convict that indeed it would comfort. And indeed, it would be that which you would use to convert uh, those who have never laid claim to the marvelous benefits earned by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.